Thank you, Anne, for that ministry and music. Well, this morning I'd like to talk to you about a figure that I'm sure you are all quite familiar with, and that is the character of Joseph. No, I don't mean the Joseph as in the uh, father of Jesus Joseph. I mean Joseph as in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat Joseph. Okay? And I imagine that many of you are quite familiar with his story. He is certainly a major character in the Old Testament, somebody that's worthy of us spending our time on. His story takes up eight whole chapters. You know that. It takes up eight whole chapters of the book of Genesis. And uh, he is the eighth most mentioned person in the entire Bible. So he's certainly a central character. And from the time we have been children in Sunday school, I imagine that we have heard quite a deal, a good deal about Joseph and his life. And there's certainly much that we can admire him for. Uh, we can use him as an example of, um, of purity, as somebody who fleed temptation in the way that he ran from uh, sexual advances of Potiphar's wife. We can also look to him as somebody who stayed true in the midst of tough situations when God was working out a larger plan in his life, though he didn't know what that may have been from the beginning. Joseph stands out to us as a shining star among many of the flawed saints that we have in the Old Testament, especially if you just read the book of Genesis. You see so many flawed characters and you're kind of relieved to finally see somebody like Joseph and to hear his story and read about it. The reason I wanted to talk to you about Joseph this morning, you might wonder, like, how do you come to pick what you're going to preach on? Um, where do these ideas come from? Sometimes I don't know. But in this case, I felt like it would be valuable for us to talk about him because I feel like he is a man who often has been misunderstood. I feel like Joseph has come under attack lately. What do I mean by that? Well, we've heard before, of course, that Joseph was a great man of faith. For all the reasons and more than I just named. But at the same time, when we come to the beginning of his story, in Genesis 37, the passage we just read this morning, we often are also taught that Joseph had this one major flaw about him, that he was arrogant. We are taught that while we should look up to Joseph in some ways, early on in his life he was nothing more than, say, a cocky and an arrogant kid. Perhaps somebody who shared his dreams with a little too much eagerness and pride that he should have. And while he certainly didn't deserve the treatment his brothers gave him, on the other hand, some say he was behaving a little bit arrogantly when he told, him, told his brothers and his parents about these dreams. That's what we often hear about Joseph, I'm afraid. And I don't know, for whatever reason, that's always kind of bothered me. Joseph always stood out to me, as I said, as this great character, this, somebody that I, I could look up to, somebody I could model my life after, somebody who, uh, you know, stands out in contrast to all these contradictory lives of the, of the patriarchs before him. And in fact, um, there are few that really stand up when you, comparison, when, you, when you compare them to Joseph as far as their character goes. And perhaps maybe that's somewhat of the problem. Joseph is almost too good too righteous for, for us to accept. Perhaps some of us are driven by the need to find this fatal flaw. Just like Abraham, we know, lied about Sarah, his wife, and called her his sister. And, and Isaac uh, followed after the same sin, called, called his wife his sister rather than being honest with Abimelech, the, the king at the time. And, and we also know about people before them. Noah, you know, Noah had his flaw. He, he got drunk one time and, and slept with his own daughters. And 
And then we know about um, Jacob, of course. He had plenty of things wrong with him. He lied about his birthright or about who he was so he could get his birthright from his father. And, and he stole that from his brother Esau. And he put on these hairy garments to, to trick his poor blind father into giving him these things that weren't his. And he even pulled a stunt with speckled sheep and spotted sheep and all that to take some flocks from Laban, the person he was working for. And, uh, and all these things he did, it just kind of seems like, okay, these are all the flaws of the people that came before him. What's Joseph's flaw? What can we find? What dirt can we dig up about Joseph? What's always kind of bothered me. And, and so this week, I decided to investigate. I don't have a whole lot of time that I could deal with the whole eight chapter story for you. Just one chapter, really. Chapter 37. But I'd like us to study this chapter and see what we can find. Was Joseph just a, a cocky and an arrogant kid, as we're so often taught? Or is there something else going on here that perhaps we may have missed before? I'd like us to look at this together and see what we find. So, obviously, slip over, to flip open to chapter 37. If you haven't done that already, we're going to look in these verses. And, and we'll start here by reading verses 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land where his father sojourned, the land of Canaan. And these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because he was the son of his old age and made him this tunic. And his brothers saw that they loved that uh, their father loved him more than the others, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, Please listen to this dream I've had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. Lo, my sheath rose up and stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheath. And his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Are you going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams. And then as we were to continue on, we see he tells another dream about the sun and moon and stars bowing down before them. And his brothers and his father rebuke him. So here we have this first section of Joseph's story. His position among his brothers, his dreams, and, and then their hatred of him. What are we to make of that? Well, first of all, we have to be honest, okay? I said to you I wanted to investigate and see what character Joseph really had, but... I'm not going to give you the impression that I want to defend everything about this story. When we look at this just at face value, we realize there is a major flaw going on. And that's that favoritism we see that his father, Jacob, showed to his son, Joseph. Jacob, in fact, is very much deserving of the criticism that we could give him for the way that he favored this one son over his other sons. I'm not going to defend that. I don't think that was right on his part. And um, just as it was wrong for him to take multiple wives to himself, as the scriptures say, that is not what God has in store for us. It's not his plan. It's never been his plan. Even back in these days where there were the patriarchs living and they took multiple wives for themselves, that's never been his, his, his will for them. So Jacob uh, was wrong in doing that and, and wrong for favoring one of those wives, namely Rachel, over the others. And I think he's just as wrong here in taking a favorite among his sons. Okay? Of course, Jacob should have loved each of his sons as best as he could, as much as the other. Jacob was wrong, and it didn't help his son any by this favoritism that he showed him. 
But with that out of the way, with that being said, should we find wrong in Joseph for this? After all, it was his father who showed him this favoritism, and that wasn't Joseph's fault. He simply was caught in the middle of this whole scheme as a favored son among many competing brothers. What happens next in these verses, I think, is a picture of how Joseph interacted with these other siblings. And while in the past you may have read these in a different light, maybe seen him as being somewhat of a cocky or bragging or a tattletale um, kind of brother, I would like you to consider that perhaps this morning something more is going on. This morning I'd like you to consider the possibility that in this scene that we've just read, Joseph should not be viewed as just a tattletale or an arrogant kid, but rather a prefigurement of Christ. Somebody who prefigures Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, just as Jesus proclaimed his own God-given authority over mankind in the day that he lived, and he was persecuted by those who rejected that authority, so too, I think, Joseph here is being persecuted by his brothers, not for his arrogance so much, but because of their rejection of his God-given authority. See, I believe Joseph here has legitimate authority over his brothers, and the telling of his dream should not be viewed so much as bragging, but as a statement of prophecy. And I think that's the key, to view this as a statement of prophecy as to what was to come. And I think when we consider Genesis 37 this way, I think we'll find that not so much criticism is directed or should be directed towards Joseph, as his brothers did, but rather we should direct more criticism of Jacob and and the other 11 sons for laughing at Joseph and not seeing the significance of the words that he spoke to them. I don't know if you're convinced of that yet, but if you don't believe me, that's all right. Let's look at the scriptures and see what they have to say. Don't believe me just because I'm saying all this stuff. Let's look and see what the Bible has to tell us. If Joseph was simply taking his father's favoritism and deciding him to say, make himself, excuse me, to make himself lord over his brothers, then we would say, in fact, that Joseph was behaving arrogantly. But as I mentioned, I believe that Joseph's authority over his brothers was not something that he wrongly assumed or took upon himself. I believe it's something that was given to him. It was something that was legitimately given to him by his father. Let's look at this. This is my first point. Look at verse 2. It reads, These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Okay. Now, when we read the New American Standard, it would look like Joseph is shepherding alongside of his brothers, as if they were equals. Okay. It says he was out pastoring with them. But... As I was researching this, looking into it a little bit more, there was a commentator by the name of George Bush, and it's not the George Bush president, mind you, or his father, just happened to be a man in the 1700s who is a commentator of the same name, uh, and, and he commented on this, looked into the Hebrew text, and I'm not good enough to be able to read the Hebrew text on my own. There's a lot of vocabulary, a lot of things that are just, it's a lot to work with. But when he looked at this, and when we look at the Hebrew text, it reads literally that Joseph was tending or acting as shepherd over his brethren in the flock. And if you look into the Hebrew in a literal reading of it, that is more how it reads. 
And so this commentator points that out. And there's grammatical reasons for it. I won't get into that there in in, in this, this sermon here. But all of this is to say that it would seem that Joseph was charged with the superintendence of his brothers, particularly these sons of Bilhah and Zilpah that were named here. So it's not that Joseph is among equals. It says here that he was acting as shepherd over these sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Okay. Now, this is significant. Remember, Bilhah and Zilpah were Jacob's two concubines that he took for himself. Remember, he had two wives. One was Rachel and the other one was Leah. And then he had these two concubines named Billah and Zilpah. And it seemed that Jacob had made Joseph supervisor over certain ones of his brothers. Namely, it says the two sons, I'm sorry, the the sons of the two concubines, Billah and Zilpah. Okay. so knowing this, when we read this Joseph story and we read that he brings back a bad report to them, to his father, that opens up a whole new level of understanding for us. In that sense, he's not being a tattletale, but rather he's doing his legitimate duty. In other words, his father would have asked him to be a overseer of them and to see how they were doing in the fields, to come back and give a report as to how they were doing, whether good or bad. Okay? And this would have been a logical and necessary part of his function of being an overseer of his brothers. So if Joseph had been placed in this position of authority by his father, then what could be more logical than to report to Jacob on the performance, the efficiency, the reliability of those under him? Now, we can see how this would have provoked anger in his brothers since Joseph brought back a bad work or bad report about his, uh, their work. But it wasn't ultimately because Joseph was being a tattletale here. That's what I want to get out. Joseph was doing the duty that his father had placed in his Uh, care. He was simply doing his job. The same is true later on when we read that uh, Joseph goes to Shechem to check up on his brothers. Read with me verses 12 through 14. Skip down to that section. It says there, then Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come and I will send them, send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Okay, so here again, I think it's even more clear that it's not Joseph going out on his own. He's going at the command of his father. And even then, his father's not saying, go see if you can dig up some dirt on your brothers. I want to hear what all they're doing wrong. No, he just says, go and I want you to see about their welfare. How are they doing? So it seems there is some sort of authority that's been given to Joseph legitimately by his father and that he is sent out as an overseer of his brothers. Okay. now I think the fact that he's going to Shechem just goes against the whole theory that he was going to spy on them for his own personal gains. That doesn't seem to make sense, especially if we take out our Bible maps and trace this out to see how far he's actually going. Okay, he wouldn't have gone all the way to Shechem just to spy on his brothers. For it's more than 50 miles for him to travel to Shechem. And in addition to this, we see that he travels even further. He goes to Dothan or Dothan, however you say that, that name there. Look in verses 15 through 17. 
Okay, so Joseph goes to Shechem. He's looking for his brothers. He's just carrying out the duty his father has given to him. And then he says, a man found, or it says in this verse, a man found Joseph, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, who are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where, where they're pasturing the flock. And the man said, they've moved on from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, if we look at a map, we'll see that this town of Dothan is another 70 miles away. Altogether, we see that Joseph would have had to travel in excess of 120 miles to track down his brothers. Now, I hardly think that he would have done that if he was just going to just get some dirt on them, to go spy on them. Okay? There are easier ways to do that. He could have waited until they came back. He could have done any other number of things. But we can see that he is traveling a great distance. And I think the reason is, he's, is because he's going out in obedience to his father. He's going out not just in obedience to his father, but he's making sure that they're okay. Now, why would Israel, Jacob, be so concerned about their welfare? He says, go out and see about their welfare. Why would there be any reason to worry about that? Well, this is where it's helpful for us to bring in context and bring in some of the things that we read in the earlier chapters of Genesis. Okay? It says he's going to Shechem. And right there is the key. He's going to Shechem. Why is Shechem important? Well... If we were to go back just a bit and go to chapter 34, you don't have to turn there. Uh, We're not going to read it all for you. But in Genesis 34, we see that uh, the 12 brothers had a sister. And and we often forget about her. It's unfortunate. We forget about Dinah. She's left out. We just think of Jacob and his 12 sons. Well, guess what? He He had a daughter, too. And and she was traveling in the area of Shechem. And it says while she was there, she was she was violated. She was raped by the people of this town or by this man who is named Shechem after whom the town was named. And, and this, this, this man violates her. And so then he wants to marry her and take her as his own. The brothers don't like this. And so they decide we're going to get back at this guy for what they did, this disgraceful thing they did to our sister. And what do they do? They, they kill virtually all of the men in Shechem in payment for what they've done to Dinah. Okay. And this take place, takes place in Shechem. Okay. So now, when you understand that, you begin to understand a little bit of why Jacob might be concerned when his sons went to go pastor a flock in Shechem. Because in just a few chapters ago, or I don't know how much time had passed, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months, maybe a few years, doesn't matter. In any case, They would have been going to the land where they just murdered a ton of people. And you might think that uh, if you go into that land, those people might have a bit of a grudge against you. Their lives might have been in danger a bit. Okay, so you can see why Joseph is sent there. He's sent there to make sure that his brothers are okay because they are going out into dangerous territory where they have just become uh, recently enemies of these people in Shechem. So not only is Joseph going for good reason, he's not going for his own arrogant, cocky motivation. He's going for his father's work and he's going at great risk to himself because now he's walking into a land where these sons of Jacob aren't very much appreciated, to say the least. Okay, so that's what's going on there, I think. And um, even though he does this with good motives, we see how his brothers respond to it. They don't like him being over them. 
they, they don't like his authority. Even though he's going to look out for their welfare, as his father instructed, they respond in jealousy. And, and I think there's another thing we can draw out of this. Who was it that had a problem with him the most? Okay, look back at verse 2. Another detail I think we, we glance over sometimes, but is very significant here. It says the people that had the problem with him the most in verse 2 were the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Okay? Now, that's a de- detail I, I don't want us to, to miss here because these sons were sons of the concubines, not the full wives. And naturally, when we recognize that, we begin to say, oh, yeah, okay, I can see why there might have been a little bit of sibling rivalry. Here they were, the sons of, you know, what people might have considered not legitimate wives of Jacob. And somehow they were viewed with less status as the sons of the legitimate wives, quote unquote, Rachel and Leah. And so all of their life, they probably had this bitterness, this resentment towards Jacob, I'm sorry, towards Joseph and and maybe even Benjamin and the other sons of Leah, the the ones who were born from Jacob's legitimate wives. Okay, so I think it's it's not an accident, not a mistake, but the Bible tells us who these sons were, which ones were there that really had the problem with Joseph. And we see the motivation for for why they wanted to take his life. Not that any of this was deserved, that anybody is deserving of having their life taken from them. But we see that so much it's not because of Joseph's arrogance or anything that he did, but rather their own personal bitterness going on for their their status as being sons of these two concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah. Those sons, by the way, were Dan and Naphtali. They were the sons of Bilhah and Gad and Asher were the sons of Zilpah. Okay. Again, I don't think here we should fault Joseph, but rather Jacob, for taking all these wives in the first place, we see the consequences of of what happens when you violate God's law. And when he takes all these wives to himself, he thinks this is a wonderful thing for him. But we see it just only creates strife in his life between the, the, the conflicts that existed between his wives and their rivalry and then down to the rivalry of his sons that hate one another because of this thing that he has done. All that, I don't think we should fault Joseph for, for any of this. Uh, we can imagine what, you know, how all this would take place, but certainly we can see that the brothers of Bilah and Zilphah go way beyond just what we would naturally expect out of jealousy. They take it a step further than that and actually want to kill him. Okay? We can understand to a degree why they would be upset, but we, we wouldn't understand why they would take it to the place where they'd want to take his life. Okay? So, so that clears some things up for us. Third point I want to make to you is that after um, the sin of Reuben, we see how Joseph gets this authority. So the question becomes, all right, uh, J- Joseph has this authority and, and he's put in charge of his brothers. But how did that happen? OK, Joseph is a young guy and relative to his other brothers, he's one of the youngest, I believe the second youngest out of all of them. So you say, OK, He was following his dad's orders. He was put in charge of them. That I understand. But how did he get there? Why would Joseph be the guy in charge of them anyway? Well, um, we see in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, the reason. And I'd ask you to keep your finger in Genesis 37 and flip ahead to that passage. 1 Chronicles, after 1 and 2 Kings, um, and this is chapter 5. 
verses 1 and 2. Because if you're going by ancient Near East practices, you would say, okay, Reuben's the firstborn. He should be the guy who's doing all this. He should be the guy in charge of all these other brothers and they're keeping the flocks and whatever. That's not the case. And we're told why. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he might is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader, yet the birthright belonged to who? Joseph. Joseph. It's a very interesting passage, I think. One that we don't often read when we read Genesis 37. We don't bring the two together. But I think it sheds a whole lot of light on what we read in Genesis 37. Here it explains why Reuben wasn't the one that Jacob made overseer of his brothers. And it's because it says he defiled his father's bed. We have more description of of what that means. In Genesis 37, uh, we see what's being referred to. And uh, in that passage, Reuben committed a terrible sin by sleeping with his father's concubine, Bilhah. Okay? So can you imagine uh, Reuben sleeping with his father's wife and just how strange that might have been? If they had had kids, I mean, you think he would have been the, his, he would, his son would have also been his brother. You get that? It would have been really, really uh, strange. It's kind of like that song, I'm My Own Grandpa, if you ever heard that. But if you haven't heard that, don't, never mind. Um, Reuben did this awful thing. And, um, and so in First Chronicles, it tells us what the result was of that. That Jacob heard of it and he rejected him as the firstborn or giving him the rights of the firstborn. And that passed down to Joseph. Okay. Now, even though Jacob doesn't speak about this blessing until we get to the end of Genesis in chapter 49, the sin itself happened back in chapter 35. So I imagine that Jacob already would have had this in mind way back then when this actually took place, that perhaps he would have revealed that along the way before we get to chapter 49. So this would have been known. And that explains why Joseph is in the fields. Now, you can't explain fully why this happens. Okay, we know for a fact that the the birthright passes from Reuben to Joseph. But on the other hand, it still doesn't explain everything. Okay, because Joseph, after all, was the second youngest. You'd think in the way that ancient Near East birthrights and all that took place, that it would go from the, the firstborn. Okay, and if he's knocked out, then we go to the secondborn, which would have been Simeon. And and, you know, if not him, then maybe Levi. And then if not him, maybe Judah. Okay, you could go through a whole list of people. And, and we could give reasons as to why, you know, others were passed over. Simeon and Levi were the two guys who went to Shechem and slaughtered everybody. So you might say, OK, well, maybe they were taken out because of that. Judah was the guy who slept with his uh, daughter-in-law um, when he thought she was a prostitute. And so maybe that takes him. But you still have some other kids in there. You understand? OK, now it could be because Joseph was the firstborn to to Rachel, his other wife. But ultimately, we, we, we don't know why he did that. And it could just be that the reason it went to Joseph was this was all part of jo- Jacob's favoriting him again. Okay? And maybe that wasn't right from a human standpoint, because after all, he's been favoring him in a way that he shouldn't be from the beginning. But the point is, no matter how Jacob arrived at that decision, 
Joseph wasn't the one who determined it. Joseph wasn't to blame for all of this. And it was ultimately Jacob's decision to make. Whether he made the right one or the wrong one, it was his to claim and his to give. So when he declared Jacob, I'm sorry, when he, I'm getting these confused, when he declared Joseph to be the overseer of his brothers, his brothers should have submitted to that, whether right or wrong. Because after all, he was the father. It was his business to do that. Okay? Now, um, that also brings us to something else. And, and all these details begin to fit together, I think, as, as we consider it this way. Um, I believe that in light of this, Joseph's coat was a symbol of this authority that he was granted over his brothers. Okay? Now, we've already established that there was this favoritism for him. There's no disputing that. But I think that this coat is more than just like a nice birthday present that Jacob's giving to his son. Okay? And just a nice ornamented robe, a designer robe for him to wear. I think this coat also symbolized Joseph's preeminence or superiority of rank. It's a coat that signified his office, so to speak. Now, as we come to this, we already have a lot of preconceived notions about what this coat looked like, right? We have this musical that's named Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, okay? And we often think of it, and when we read our children's books and all that, we have Joseph there, and he's got every color of the rainbow on him, okay? And so that's how we often picture this. But, but to be honest, nobody's quite exactly sure how to translate this word. And we see that in the New American Standard, it goes that route. It says that it's a very colored tunic. But if you were to turn to the NIV, and any of you out there that's reading an NIV this morning, you'll, you'll see what I mean. It just says it's a richly ornamented robe. Okay? doesn't say necessarily, the, the, the word in Hebrew doesn't necessarily say anything about color. Others have suggested that it was a long-sleeved robe. So we can at least say that it was something different than your ordinary, you know, everyday clothes. That's for sure. But exactly how that was different, people are a little more undecided about. We just usually fall on the colored thing because that sounds cool. Looks neat. You know, we, can, we like to picture that. But, but some people, and, and not without reason, like to, to believe that the, the one way we could understand this is that it was a among other things, a long-sleeved robe. And back in that time, having a long-sleeved robe would have meant a number of different things. You might compare it to our modern-day distinctions of being uh, such as a white-collared worker or a blue-collared worker. Okay? You, you think of people who are overseers of people in a business. And, you know, the, the managers, the, the bosses, okay, they wear the suits, right? They're the ones with the, the suits on them and stuff. And and then there's a distinction made just that we can just see externally by the clothes that are worn between the executives and the people who aren't executives. Okay? I think there was a similar distinction going on here when Joseph was given this robe. Not just that it was very nice looking and that it was this nice birthday gift, but that in a way it signified his authority that was given to him. It was almost like a uniform, so to speak, a statement of his authority. You might think of like, um, you know, army uniforms with the, the stripes that are on. Think of the long sleeves on Joseph's coat as being like those stripes. Okay, when people saw him wear this, there was a certain message that was communicated about the authority that he had over his brothers and the status that his father had placed on him. So I think that the status is given to him by his father, that he has a legitimate right to be overseer of his brothers, and that this coat is further evidence of that status that his father had given him as overseer. Okay, 
Well, now I think we're beginning to put a lot of these pieces together and, uh, and vindicate Joseph, I think, a little bit from the bad rap that he normally gets. But, but then there's more, okay? We still have to come to this whole issue of his dreams. Okay, weren't his dreams a little too much? Surely he had the right to supervise his brothers, we would say now, but did he really have the right to go off about these dreams? Wasn't he being a little bit arrogant here? Well, I'm, I don't think so. I don't think so. Let's read the text some more. Go to verse 5, okay, and we're back in chapter 37 of Genesis. And verse 5 says, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream I've had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheath rose up and stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheath. His brothers said, Are you going to actually reign over us? Are you going to actually rule over us? So they hated him even more for his words. And then he had another dream and related to his brothers. Still, I've had another dream and behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and his brothers. His father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and brothers actually come and bow ourselves down to you on the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept these sayings in mind. I think the thing we should keep in mind here is that last verse that I just read for you. His brothers were jealous of him. That really was the problem, not ultimately Joseph. At the end of the day, the reason for their hatred and for their violence, moreover, was their jealousy, not ultimately because Joseph had wronged them in any way. In the section, Joseph, for sure, relays to them these two dreams. Okay, it's for sure that he's telling these to him, to to his brothers. But they do not respond well to it. Okay. Uh, Notice what the text does not say. It does not say that Joseph gloated over his brothers. Okay. When we say that Joseph bragged about these dreams, I think we read into the text a little bit here. Quite the contrary. All that we are told is that, for one thing, Joseph was given a God-given dream. We know it's God-given because it comes to pass. So it's not something that he made up on his own, was just trying to invent to have something to hold over his brothers. So if this did come to pass, then it had to have been from God and God intentionally placed it in his head as a dream. So he had this dream and all it says was that he tells it to his brothers. And that's it. We don't have any more words from him about him commenting on that or or trying to gloat over his brothers about it. He just relays it. And I think the key here is not coming down on Joseph. Um, as somebody who's a tattletale, but rather to view him as we would with a prophet. Okay. And I think that's truly what he is here. I think that helps us to understand him a little bit better. Think about it. Okay. Think about the way you'd view other prophets. Daniel had his dreams. Okay. Isaiah had his visions. Hosea might have heard the word of the Lord and relayed it. And what did these people do? Okay. They, they received the word of God in whatever form. Maybe it was in a dream. Maybe it was... Uh, through an audible voice, maybe they just perceived it. However the case may have been, what these prophets all did was receive that word from God and relay it. Whether it had a positive message or something that the people didn't want to hear, they received the message that they had been given and they simply relayed it to the people. And I think that's exactly what Joseph is doing here. He proclaims just a prediction of things that are to come to pass. And you know what? 
his word becomes true. It's true. It vindicates him. Joseph had these dreams. And because of that and that fact alone, his brothers painted him as an arrogant jerk. He was hated and mistreated for these things that he said, all because he simply received a dream from God and nothing more. And ultimately, he's treated the same way today, I think, in the way that we read him. But notice the verse that I used for this morning's call to worship. I was really excited to be able to include that as the call to worship. Flip back to your bulletin here for a second. Okay. Psalm 105. Verses 17 through 19. And it says again, God sent a man before the sons of Israel, Joseph, sold as a slave. Evil men bruised his feet with shackles and his neck was put in irons till what he foretold came to pass until the word of the Lord proved him true. You see, Joseph was hated because of the dreams that he simply relayed to his family. And Psalm 105 says that it wasn't until he rose to power. It wasn't until that he came to that place that God had promised and predicted for him. To a place where he could save his family and save Egypt. That it says the word of the Lord finally proved him true. You see in verse 19 that Joseph foretold the future. And it pretty clearly says to me when it uses that word till what he foretold came to pass. Those seem to be words describing a prophet to me. What he foretold came to pass. And then it says the word of the Lord proved him true. I believe that the word of the Lord that's being quoted there is is those those dreams. Those dreams that Joseph told his brothers weren't words of bragging or arrogance, but they were words from God, words of prophecy. But his brothers rejected that prophecy and took him instead to just be an arrogant kid. However, I think Psalm 105 here pretty clearly makes it uh, for us that, that he wasn't being that way. That wasn't the case. What he predicted did come to pass and it proved him when it finally did come to pass. He proved he wasn't being arrogant after all. It proved him true, it says. So with all those things put together, I believe we arrive at a very different picture of the young Joseph than we're often given. Rather than being a cocky or arrogant young kid, Joseph was somebody who was entrusted with authority and was promised a future prominence by God. And further, he was somebody who was rejected because of the threat of that authority. When we think of him in this light, I believe we have a perfect example of an Old Testament person who prefigured Christ. Somebody who points us forward to him and bears a lot of key similarities to the life of Jesus. For just as Joseph was given authority by God and was rejected entirely because of that authority, so too in an even greater way, Joseph reminds us of Jesus who was given authority from above and was rejected because of the threat of that authority. Listen to Matthew 7, verses 28 through 29. So when Jesus finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Then if we listen from Matthew 21, verse 23, after months of Jesus teaching this way, the chief priests, it says, um, they, they questioned him. They said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Further on in Matthew 26, verse 4, it says, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way to kill him. I think when we look at Jesus and Joseph in a similar light, I think we find a much better way to understand Joseph's early life in Genesis 37 
than we have before. The bottom line is this, that Joseph was rejected by his brothers because he, the youngest of these men, except Benjamin, was placed in a position of authority over them. They didn't like that. And their rejection of Joseph's authority, coupled with their fear of his even greater preeminence one day that was foreshadowed by his dreams, led them to conclude that they must do away with him in order to protect their own position. That's how I think Joseph should be understood. Where does that leave us? Okay. Joseph was predicting these things, and because of that, he was persecuted, just in a similar way that Jesus Christ was, in a greater way, given authority and persecuted. What do we do take away from this? It's a great story, but what do we do? Okay. Well, I never claimed that this message was going to give you the five major lessons to, of living your life. That this was going to be a, a grand applicational message. My goal this morning simply was for us to understand the Bible a little bit more. But if I had to be pressed for some application out of this, I would say that the life of Joseph provides excellent material and an excellent case study on rejection. While we'd never say that Joseph was absolutely sinless, here in Genesis 37, I do think we have an example of someone who suffered not because of anything specifically that they had done, but solely because of the word of the Lord that God gave to him. What does that mean practically to you and I? means that rejection and persecution may very well come to us too, just as it came to Joseph, because we bear the authority from the Scriptures. Just as his brothers didn't like hearing the way God had placed Joseph in authority over them, so too today people aren't going to very much like the notion that we bear some authority or we bear the symbol of authority in the Word of God and that God really does have authority over their own lives. People naturally don't like to hear messages of God's authority over them. They didn't like it in Joseph's day. They rejected him and persecuted him. We shouldn't expect any less. People aren't going to like the, the fact that we have to say essentially to them in the gospel that, you know what? You have to answer to God now. By accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to accept God as your authority. That's a statement of authority that we bring to people. And just as people didn't like the fact that God had placed Joseph to be the agent of authority over them. People aren't going to like us coming to them and saying, you know what, you have to answer to God now. And we're going to expect the same kind of reaction that perhaps Joseph would have received. John 15, 18 through 20 says, If the world hates you, you know that it was, has hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would have loved its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep your words also. Joseph found that last part to be true. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. That God was giving him authority and his, their rejection of him was not so much a rejection of him personally, but a rejection of the authority that God had set up. And we may just as well find that to be the case with us when we try and bring that message of authority to others. May the story of Joseph encourage us to look to God even in times when we suffer for doing no wrong other than simply bearing the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for the fact that we are privileged to bear the word of God, that we are privileged to bear that message of your authority over men and women's lives. And we recognize that by bearing that, Lord, we might very well run into the same kind of response that Joseph received. 
that when we try to tell people about your authority or your coming authority over them, that they might very well persecute us just as Joseph was persecuted. God, I pray that we would understand this passage rightly and that, Lord, we would be able to take this and be encouraged that when perhaps we suffer some of the same kind of things, that it's not that we are being arrogant, as some people may claim us to be arrogant for claiming that Jesus Christ is the only way, just as people claim that Joseph was arrogant. No, may we not fall back and fear that we are acting in a wrong way. But, Lord, may we entrust them to your care. May we trust that this message of your authority over men and women's lives is something that you've told us to proclaim. May we not waver from it. May we not hesitate to preach your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In closing, let's